Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. Well, today is uh, what I guess you would call a, a prequel, or, or you could also call it an origin story if you're into to kind of the Marvel movies. And um, we're going to look at the origin story of the Church of Ephesus. So we're Today's not part of the sermon series, but it's kind of setting it up. There's a lot in the Bible um, about Ephesus, outside of the book of Ephesus. So we're, we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at how this church started. And I'm not going to go through everything. And, and it's, uh, you know, it, as I was thinking through uh, this sermon this week, it, it's going to have some choppiness to it. I'm, I'm going to warn you because... We're going to just look at some things that have happened, and, and I pray the Holy Spirit will put it all together. Um, but a little background about Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in Asia. It was a Roman, in a Roman province. Um, Ephesus was on major trade routes. It was on a, a port. And it also was along the, 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 uh, the roads that, that many people traveled. Um, think throughway. And it ran through Ephesus. Ephesus was at the crossroads of civilization. It was a large city for its day, 200 to 250,000 people in the city itself. Ephesus was known for magic sorcery, all sorts of religions. They had a temple in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, sometimes called Diana. And that temple, people would worship at that temple. Um, so think again, modern day, maybe San Francisco, New York, you've got a really cosmopolitan city, all sorts of ideas baking in, in it because there's all sorts of people traveling through it. That is the city that Paul wrote to the Christian church in Ephesus, and that, that is the background. They, they were known for this temple. This temple actually made them famous, the temple of Artemis. And there was craftsmen in the city that would sell these little idol shrines, kind of like if you went to the Statue of Liberty and you brought home a, a little Statue of Liberty and you, you put on your um, counter to say, hey, I've been to the Statue of Liberty. People would go to the Temple of Artemis and they would buy a little miniature statue. That brings us to Acts 19, 24 to 27. And again, we're going to just kind of skim through a, a, a survey of how this church started. So Paul's in Ephesus. He's preaching and teaching. He's preached for two years in a hall of uh, Tyrannus. And, and the Bible says that he was preaching five hours a day for two years, preaching the gospel. The city's 
somewhat of an, in an uproar because Paul is saying, hey, that temple that you guys are, are praying to and that you're worshiping, it's nothing. It's nothing. Jesus is the God that made heavens and earth and gives you your breath. And Paul is preaching this for years. And as you might imagine, people are coming to faith and that's disrupting some things that are going on in this city that relies on the temple of Artemis for, for industry and for profit. Acts 19, 24 to 27. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see that in here, that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So again, when, when we dig into to Ephesians next week, this is in the background. You've got a whole city and an uproar saying, this Christianity that's coming into Ephesus, it's ruining our economy. And if you can imagine here, um, Demetrius, as he's telling the fellow craftsmen, he's kind of, I have to laugh when I read this, he says, men, you know, this Paul is saying these gods that we make with our hands, that they're not gods. Demetrius. Um, so that's the background. You have, you have a riot. We're not going to look at that today, but if you're in Acts 19 and Acts 20, you're going to see a riot break out because of this in Ephesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy, Larry Hurtado, who wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, and he says that one of the things that early Christianity did and still does today is it threatens the idols of the culture, and he calls it the destroyer of the gods. So wherever Christianity goes, people are worshiping, whatever they're worshiping, Artemis here, sex here, whatever, whatever it is, Christianity comes and it threatens those idols. He says this about the temple of Artemis. The ancient temple represented a significant sphere of economic activity. And so any denunciation of the gods, any withdrawal from their worship, or even the threat or prospect of this would have been seen as threatening to the many with vested interest in the various components of the operation of the temple. So all he's saying is this was a threat. And you can understand why it was a threat. If many people in Ephesus are making their living from the temple of Artemis, what's going to happen when the gospel rolls in? In fact, what's going to happen when the gospel rolls into a city 
in America and people start coming to faith. The idolatrous worship that's going on all around will cease and we should pray for that church. I mean, just here in Cicero, I just read like two um, um, sex uh, places that were offering illicit sex were busted. This is in our backyard in Cicero. And, and what, what's happening here in Ephesus and what should be happening all across the world is wherever there's a church and people are coming to faith, the idols are threatened. The idols of the land are threatened. It doesn't take much to, to think about this through, through the news feed right now or the last two years especially. If you think about what's going on actually right now with Roe and um, possible rolling back of Roe Ro v. Wade, well, people are outraged. I just read this morning, um, people are outraged at the prospect of Roe um, being overturned. Why? It's an idol of the land. It's an idol of the land. Life in the womb is precious. Christians say that's precious and that's a life and only God has the ability to take a life or give a life. But the world around us says, oh no, we can make that decision. That's Christianity clashing with the idols of the land. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That's what we believe. The scriptures are very clear about that. But the, the gods of the land will say, no, 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 you're threatening our idols. We don't like you. And make no mistake about it, this is why Christians are persecuted. Christianity has always been a threat to the state because the state in any totalitarian reg regime, you bow down to the state. But Christians for the last 2,000 years have said, we will obey you up until a point. And if you ask us to worship another God, we will not obey you. And that is a threat to the state, and that is why Christians all over the world are persecuted. So just know, this is the, the first point, if, you, if you're a note taker, this is in the background of the book of Ephesians. It's not going to be as prominent if you remember 1 Peter. It was in almost every sermon in 1 Peter. There was a lot of this, but this isn't, you're, we're not going to have it and see it in the letter, but it's in the background. All right, let's keep moving here. Origin story of Ephesians. Ephesians, second point, was a, or Ephesus, was a spiritual city. Spiritual city. All welcome. Pluralism. All gods are welcome. Bring them in. All right, we see in Acts 19. <clears throat> and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is like, God. first of all, God was doing the miracles. It's the, the scripture doesn't say Paul was doing them. God was doing them. For some reason, the Lord wanted to authenticate 
his message, and especially in Ephesus, it's saying these miracles were extraordinary. Even his clothes that touched somebody that was sick were healing them. So you've got this, this thing going on, and then all of a sudden you've got these, the Bible calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists. These are traveling Jewish exorcists. This is in the book of Acts. This is gonna, things are going to get wild here in Ephesus. They're going to get a little crazy. So these guys hear of all the, the, the miracles that, that the Apostle Paul is doing, and they say, we, we want in. I want in. We're exorcists. We travel around and cast out demons. I, I want the same power that Paul has. I don't believe in Jesus, but I want this power. So in Acts 19, we read this. Then some of the itinerant, that just means traveling, Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. So check this, this situation out. This is crazy. This is not something we're used to. They're trying to rebuke a, a spirit in a man, and the spirit in the man answers them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The spirit recognizes these guys don't have the Holy Spirit. Something's different with these seven sons. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Think about this for a moment. These, okay, the seven men, and some, some translations say both, so it's either seven or two. We, I, I don't know. Either way, men go into this, this place, they try to cast out a demon, the demon says, I don't recognize you, and they leave naked and beaten. Naked and beaten. And friends, I, I would just say, as Christians, this, this should be a warning to us. This should be a warning. We don't walk around throwing the name of Jesus out there like it's magic. And that's, I say that because it's, it is kind of a big thing in some Christian circles, like just throwing the name of Jesus, like, like the name of Jesus itself has some kind of magic in it. We don't do that. We don't do that. This should be a warning. The power is not in the actual name of Jesus, how you spell it. The power is behind who is Jesus. Amen. Who is he? He's Lord. He's Savior. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's our, our bigger brother, our older brother, elder brother. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. The power is in who Jesus is and your relationship with him. We don't just go shouting around his name. We see what happened here to the, to the sons of Siva. Um, gotquestions.org deals with this topic, and I thought they did a really good job. 
Um, they say Jesus is not a magic word. It's not. This might surprise some of you. Jesus is not a magic word. There's nothing special about the arrangement of the letters in his name. There is no magical power in the name of Jesus. There is only power in Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. There's many men on this earth right now named Jesus, right? That's a big popular name in, in Latin circles. By simply calling out the name of Jesus, one cannot expect a special power, outcome, or better standing with God. And if you think about it like this, um, the Lord's Supper, we've been doing a uh, study on the Lord's Supper. And if you're in that study, you, you know that you've got the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice. And there's no power in the bread and the juice. The power is taking hold of the Lord's Supper by faith. So the same comes with Jesus. These seven sons are throwing out the name of Jesus because they think it's magic and they don't even have a relationship with him. And I, I, I think the church has fallen for this in some ways, and I'm not saying our church, but the greater church, where people are just throwing out the name of Jesus and they don't know anything about him. We have to be careful. The Apostle Matthew says this of, of, of those who prophesied and casted out demons in the name of Jesus. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you to part from me you workers of lawlessness. This is a rebuke on the charismatic movement in Christianity. This is a rebuke on that. And I'm not saying there's a, a continuum. It's not all bad, but it can get crazy and you have to be careful. The name of Jesus does not have magic in it. Jesus has much to say about depression, about anxiety, about addiction, about sin, about living an abundant life, about joy, about peace. But friends, hear me, please. The magic in his name is not what's going to give you the solutions to those things. It's his word that talks about those things. His word. It's the whole counsel of God that speaks into those things, not just shouting the name of Jesus when we need help. Um, when we look at our faith, our faith is a slow, plodding, day in, day out, walking with Jesus, reading his word, learning about him. That's what is going to heal us. There's a, uh, amen, brother. There's a one-page essay out there called In Praise of the Boring, Uncool Church. I've, I've sent it out to a few of you. Um, one page, if, if you're interested, I can send you the link. But it's just the idea that, hey, we're, we're not here. This isn't rock concert Christianity. We're here to feed on the word, to worship the Lord. And it's just over time we are changed from one degree to the next and we don't see that 
That's so imperceptible. Um, but when you can look back on your life and look back five years, ten years, like, oh, God's been doing something in my life. And I just didn't see it while it was happening. So, okay, back to, to Ephesus. We have the demon-possessed man. He gets beat down. He beats down the, the, the Jewish exorcist, sorry. Then what happens? So again, we're, we're back, back to Ephesus. Draw your attention back to Ephesus. Paul's preaching the gospel. Things are happening. The, the, the whole city's in an uproar because of, of, of the temple and, and their, their wealth is, is being uh, threatened. And now this happens. And what might you expect happens after something like this happens? Well, I, I think what actually is going to take place might not be what we think. Acts 19, uh, we're going to read 17 to 20. So, and this, this is what we just talked about, what we just read about. And this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's an interesting outcome for two men being beat to a pulp and running out of a house naked after they tried to cast out a demon. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And, and I want to show you what, what happens. Verse 18. <clears throat> also, many of those who were now believers, so if you've got Christians, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Brothers and sisters, what happened was fear and awe came over the people and a revival broke out. The believers came, confessing, divulging. These are believers saying, I, I, yes, I, I, I believe in Jesus, but I've also been doing this magic over here on the side. Or yes, I believe in Jesus and I've been sexually immoral. And, and they're coming and they're confessing. And so much was the value of these books that they threw in the fire Commentators say we can agree because Luke does not tell us which silver coin, but there's two silver coins that it could have been. At the lowest level, we're talking several million dollars. Several million dollars worth of books being burnt. We are talking here in Ephesus. The church is experiencing a full-out revival this is what revival looks like. Revival always starts in the church. And I would just press on you and, and ask this question. Are you living in line with the word of God? Because if you are not, the church is never going to experience revival when the, when the church is acting like the world. In fact, all of the revivals that you're going to see in the Bible are going to be accompanied by repentance. 
repentance. And that's a word that doesn't get thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot in Christian circles. It's a word that, that we kind of, you know, maybe like a crazy uncle, we, we keep quiet and we don't want people to see like, hey, I, I, I'm a Christian. Here, this is the gospel. God has a wonderful plan for your life and you will flourish. That, that's, that's, that's true, but that's half true. And half truth is not truth. The reality is, when you read the gospel in the book of Acts, it's repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They go together. They go together. Um, I, I, I've been studying and, and really interested in, in the two great awakenings that have happened in this country and England. You have two great awakenings. You have one in the 1700s, it's called the first great awakening, and one in the 1800s, it's called the second great awakening. Um, but I want to read something from Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in not too far from here um, in, in New England, and he had a small church in a small town, and something miraculous happened in that church and in that town um, where just almost the whole, whole town came to faith in Christ, like almost the whole town. And then it was happening all over the Northeast, and this is what he said. Our public assemblies, which this is right now, were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the ministers they came from his mouth. From time to time, the assembly in general, in general were in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Folks, that is revival. What we just read in Ephesians is revival. What we see happen all over this land when, with the tent revivals is people getting really excited and emotional, um, and it, it's manufactured. The second great awakening, most scholars will say, was a, an attempt to manufacture revival. They call it revivalism. They say the first one was a true revival. The second one was men putting on their thinking caps and say, okay, how can we recreate what happened in the 1700s? And I would submit to you that only God can do that. But I would also challenge you and say, if God's people are not living separate from the world, not separate, we're in the world, but if we are living just like the world, taking part in their idolatry, whatever that may be, and just going about our day, that's not the testimony that the Lord has for the church, it just isn't. If the church wants to be truly on mission, we must get past this idea that pursuing holiness is legalism. We need to get past the idea that being present in worship is, is legalism. There's a quote, um, I don't have it up on the screen, but it's from Owen Strand, and he says, a whole generation of Christians were taught that the pursuit of holiness is legalism, that reading your Bible every day is legalism. We've got to be a little more careful on the legalism side and not drift into the other side where we're like, hey, we can do whatever we want. That's not grace. And there's a hundred scriptures I, I could quote, and I'm not going to quote them. But this is a question that I want to end this, this part with is, 
How is the church a light to the nations if we're living exactly like the nations? That's the question you have to ask yourself. That's the question we should be asking ourselves as Vintage Faith Church. All right, the next point. This is where it's going to kind of turn a bit. False teachers. So as Andrew read um, in Acts, Paul, as he's leaving the Ephesian uh, community, he gathers the elders together and he, he, he brings them together and he says, I'm going to miss you. I've declared the whole counsel of God. But be on guard because fierce wolves are coming. And they're going to come into the church and they're going to be part of the church and they're going to start leading people astray. Acts 20, 29 to 30, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So I, I don't know if you have this category in your, in your faith, false teaching, um, but I, I would tell you that you should. First of all, in the New Testament, Book of Galatians is completely devoted to a false gospel. Um, Book of Jude deals with false teaching. Second Peter has a large amount of words devoted to, to false teaching. Um, Second Timothy, First Timothy, and Revelation. These, all these books have lots of language written to Christians, to be on guard for false teachers. To be on guard for false teachers. And here's one of the things that I've learned in in my last six years as, as a pastor is nobody who is listening or reading false teaching thinks they are listening or reading to a false teacher. Nobody. I could say, be on guard for false teaching, and everyone will say, amen. Amen, pastor, we're, we're with you. However, however, many who would agree are playing in puddles that are muddy. And why does false teaching even matter? Why does it matter? First, let's go to 1 Timothy 1.3. This is another interesting connection to the book of uh, the Ephesians. Here's Paul telling Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. So again, the Bible is one cohesive story. Paul leaves, Luke records in the book of Acts that Paul's going to, as he's leaving, he's telling the elders, be ready, it's coming, false teaching is coming. And here you have, as Paul's life is ending, this is further down the road, he tells Timothy, stay at Ephesus. Don't leave. There's false teachers there. Rebuke them. There's false teachers there. Rebuke them. And, and again, I would just ask, do you take this serious in your, in your walk? I can tell you as the pastor of this church, I, I do. It's, it's in my job description. It's in my job description. It's in Steve's. It's in Randy's. False teaching. We have to be on guard. 
And you might be thinking, well, why? 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 Who cares what we believe? Why? why a little, you know, as long as it's the gospel, who cares? And this is what I would say, that there is a connection, and it's a deep connection between your life and your doctrine. There's a deep connection between how you live and what you believe. Between if you're going to walk in freedom and joy and true victory and live the abundant life that Jesus has for you, or you're going to walk in frustration and anger and constantly be let down. This is what Jesus means when he says the truth will set us free. He's not, again, he's not just talking about believe in Jesus, and I think a lot of our minds go there. He's talking about the whole counsel of truth will set you free. Richard Loveless says this about just the, the connection between what we believe and how we live. And if you don't know what justification is, um, I'm not going to explain it here, but it's a, it's a word you should know. The understanding of justification is one of a complex of factors determining spiritual vitality. So this is everything you want, spiritual vitality. I want it, you want it, I want it for this church. This is living the good life. And if others were missing or unarticulated in the church's experience, such as deep conviction of God's holiness and human need, I would say he's talking about sin, then even while the church held to justification by faith alone, it would suffer distortions. So, so let me translate what he's saying. What we believe about doctrine and, and, and what the Bible teaches is going to either give us vitality or it's going to distort how we're living out the faith. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. You guys hear me use this illustration often. I think it's, it fits here, but think about this for a moment. If we were to put your thoughts for just this morning, from 8 o'clock to say even now, up on the screen, so we just grab one of you and say, boom, put the thoughts up on the screen, no one in here would be able to stand it. No one in here would be able to stand it. Now, if I believe that as a Christian, all my thoughts should have to be pure and all my thoughts necessarily will be pure because now I'm a Christian and now I believe in Jesus and I don't have a, a real category for, I've got a sinful nature that is continuing to haunt me. If I don't know that, I'm either burying what I just said and, and pushing that really deep down or trying to justify every thought that I have. Like, yeah, I had a thought that that person was an idiot. And you know what? They really are an idiot. Go ahead. Put it up on the screen. Right? Like, okay, you're justifying. But if you really understand sin and the sinful nature, you know that every thought that comes into your mind is not necessarily your thought. And you know that, hey, we, we kill these thoughts. We don't chase these thoughts. But if you don't have that category, this is theology. If you don't have that category, and, and I say this because I've met 
many Christians who say, I want to live in the victory, in the victory only. Stop talking about sin, pastor. Why are you talking about sin? We're new creations. Yes, that's true, but you and I are still struggling with a nature that is sinful, and you're going to have evil thoughts, and I'm going to have evil thoughts. And if I don't have a category for why my thoughts are evil from time to time, I'm condemned. I'm condemned. But if I have a category for that, I bring them to the cross. Forgive me, Jesus. And you're washed. This is 1 John in action. Richard Lovelace goes on to, to say this, without a depth understanding of sin, the victorious life becomes an exercise in futility. The world does not need more victorious Christians who drive their neighbors to distraction by their cheerful indulgence and undiscerned carnality. This is our witness if we are walking around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and I'm living in the victory and, and blatantly living against the Bible, that is not a testimony. In fact, the Bible would say you are blaspheming God. Romans 2, that's blasphemy to go around and say, this is who I am. Praise Jesus, I'm saved. And just willfully living a life that is against the Bible. Now, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin, and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about willfully sinning. But folks, this, this is why we, on our website, we have a book list. Um, in fact, in the foyer, we have 10 copies of a DVD called American Gospel. I highly recommend, if you haven't seen it, take a copy that is free. That's from Vintage Faith Church. They lay out the real gospel next to a lot of false gospels, and they, they just hit them one by one, and it's very enlightening. Um, so I would say if you haven't watched that, I know a lot of people, well, maybe in this church, we, we're, we're a little older. You still might have DVD players. The younger generation might even be like, DVD, that's old technology. We don't, we don't use that. Um, but I, I want, if you haven't seen that, please take a copy. There's ten or nine of them. Someone, someone already took one. Um, but again, false teaching. This is a category. I, I, want you, I, I hope you can have it. It's out there. It's going to be out there. It's going to be the most popular books in Christianity usually and the most popular teachers. And sometimes they're just maybe not saying something that's false, but they're leaving out a good portion of the whole counsel of God, and that's just as damaging. Um, Kevin DeYoung says this about false teaching. A church must build healthy bridges to welcome the curious in, but also build sturdy walls to keep false teaching out. Jesus didn't rebuke the seven churches because they weren't nice enough to the Nicolaitans. He rebuked them because they tolerated that woman, Jezebel, who thought herself a big shot and was leading Christians into sexual immorality and idolatry. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus did not rebuke the seven churches because they weren't nice enough. He rebuked them because 
they got sucked into the culture. Jezebel, they got sucked into sexual immorality. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, that is a prominent point. The church, God calls the church and says, come out of the world. Come out. He calls it the whore of Babylon. Come out. Don't live like that. So here we have again Paul warning the Ephesian elders false teachers are going to come. So again, have this in the background. Next week, we're jumping into the book of Ephesians. You just some categories Temple of Artemis, they made their money by selling idols. It was a very spiritual place. And Paul said, false teachers are coming. I often ask in my sermons um, if your emotions are, are moved or stirred during worship. And by worship, I mean the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the singing of the word. And when I ask, are your emotions stirred, I'm not saying visibly like, oh, I didn't see you dancing around like a, a clown. Um, you must have not been stirred. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I, I think you could be standing like a statue and being moved internally and nobody around you knows it. Um, and somebody dancing um, could just be being moved by the music. Um, so when I ask if you're moved, I'm not asking, do others see you moved? I'm asking, have you been moved by the word of God? Is your heart moved? Is your heart stirred? In fact, last week, I know, um, while Ashley was singing A Beautiful Name, I know of at least two people that said I was in tears. You know, no, nobody sees that, nobody knows that, but that, that's happening. We're, we're moved by the lyrics. Um, we're moved by God's word. We hosted a, a worship night here a few weeks ago, which was, was cool, it was great. And after, the, the last song uh, was actually the benediction that we often give, number six. And it was a pretty cool song, and me and Dave Pettit were talking. And we were just kind of talking about the, the whole night, but um, he said he was moved during that, and I'm like, okay, what part in the song? I was just asking. I wanted to know. I like to know these things. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't get moved by the music. When Steve read the Bible, I was in tears. That's what I mean. Are you moved? Are you stirred? And it might be music. It might be God's word. But are you stirred by singing about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Worship without theology is not worship. But theology without worship is not theology. So you can... I don't know if you see what I'm doing there, but we worship and we are moved by truth. And when we read and, and dig into truth, we should be moved to worship. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. The head and the heart are together. 
And I want to end the sermon today. Jesus has some words for the Ephesian church because the Ephesian church cared mightily. As you've just heard, Paul said, be ready. The false teachers are coming. He tells Timothy, stay there. Stay there and fight that fight of false teachers. But we can see here towards the end of the Bible that something happens. And this is a warning to to vintage because we, we care about false teaching and I care as is the lead pastor about false teaching, but we never want to lose the fact that theology invokes worship. They're not pulled apart. They're not pulled apart. When we sit here on Wednesday night and we're studying the Lord's Supper, that should invoke worship. So here are Jesus' words to the Ephesian church. And again, frame this as we get into the letter. Just These are a bunch of points here Um, that the Bible has on, on Ephesians. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And remember, this is Jesus talking. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So here we see they've tested. Is it true? Is it not? They know their teaching. They know their doctrine. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So these words can be a warning. And I know we have people in all different places. Some of you love doctrine, love theology. Some of you don't really care so much. I'm trying to, those that don't care, I'm trying to gently push you to care a little more. And those who love it, keep loving it, but be careful. We have to be careful. We can never separate theology from worship. That love, the abandon, the love that you had at first, that is the love for Jesus. And I would ask you in here, um, have you abandoned? Do you remember the love of Christ that you first experienced? Can you remember it? Can you remember it? And maybe you're in here and the reason that's faded is because you haven't dug into theology and you've just had that love with Jesus at first and you've not taken it upon yourself to dig in or maybe you're the opposite and you've gotten so into it but you forgot that theology and worship go together. And the next question I would ask is maybe you've never experienced his love. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to save sinners. And when we repent and trust in him, we are saved and we, our sins are forgiven and we have eternal life. We no longer have to fear death. We can walk in a newness of life. This is the gospel. So if you've not experienced his love, pray. Pray. Jesus, I want 
to know you. I Forgive me of my sins. I've sinned against you. I need you. And talk to someone here. And the last question that I would just ask is, do you know that you need theology to love Jesus rightly? How do you know this God that you're worshiping if you don't know what he is like? Um, I say it a lot. I'll say it again. If, if we don't know from his word who he is, we are going to take the current cultural feeling out there and just kind of put them together. And we, even, we won't even know we're doing it, but it'll happen. And we'll say, okay, God is, you know, he's a God that um, pat me on the back. He, he loves me, loves me no matter what. Um, doesn't care about sin because, you know, the, the world around us doesn't care about sin. He just wants me to be happy. That's probably the God that, that you'll create. And that God is just like the Temple of Artemis statues is, is an idol that you've created and not a real God. Um, all right, well, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you can just make sense of, of all these different things that happened in, in Acts around the church in Ephesus and, and connect these pieces with people in their minds and their hearts. I, I just pray that you can lead um, people as only you can do is the spirit of truth. You, you know in here what every heart needs. Um, so I just ask that you lead Vintage Faith, lead, lead um, our people, lead, lead me um, into a deeper, just spiritually um, alive relationship with you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.